Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding, a place dedicated to the discussion of Christian faith in 21st century life. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So join us as we endeavor to understand 21st century life through the lens of Christian faith. I'm your host, Alan Bevere, pastor, professor, author, and lover of Five Alarm Food. Come and seek with me. everybody. Welcome to our monthly episode of Calmly Considered here at Faith Seeking Understanding University. I am uh, Alan Bevere. I am the self-appointed Anselm of Canterbury, Chair of Podcast Theology and Culture at Faith Seeking Understanding University, where all seekers are welcome to ponder profound things free of charge. And my conversation partner, as always, is Michael Cruz, uh, who has now joined the faculty of Faith Seeking Understanding University. He is the Grand Poobah Chair of Economics and Public Theology. Uh, so welcome to the faculty, Michael. Well, thank now, you. Now, as you know, there's no pay for this, but there's also no teaching responsibilities either. All you have to do is just have conversation with me once a month. And plus you get a great title, right? right. The Grand Poobah Chair. You can, I, I was going to say you can put that on your resume, but I think both of us are at the age where we're not updating our resumes anymore. <laughs> All I need is a cool hat. All you need is a cool hat. Well, you're welcome if you can find one you can wear. Although, you know, obviously, obviously, um, We've, uh, there you go. That might work, but you know, we'll have to expand it a little. We'll bit. have to figure that out. Yeah, um, I, I, uh, I, I think, I think uh, that reveals that both of us probably, as children, watched the Flintstones growing up. But um, yes, I think that's a. But isn't that like Gilbert and Sullivan thing? Isn't Grand Poobah? Isn't that like the late nineteenth century? I don't know where that comes from. Did I think it? that's where it comes from. I'm gonna have to look it up now. I'm curious, but I think that's where it comes from. All right. Well, listen, um, it's good to see you. And, you know, we have, I, I had you introduce yourself, um, but uh, I, I just want to spend a, a couple of moments just letting folks know your background and your experience. And, you know, people, people who have uh, followed me on this channel and blog and elsewhere probably know more than, about me than they want to. Right. But uh, you, now you've been very quick to say in our conversations, whether it's on video or you and I have private correspondence by email. You've been very quick to say you have not, uh, you don't have a degree in economics or things, anything like that, but you very clearly know economics. I mean, there's no doubt about that. You've, you've yeah. read widely in it. Uh, and so you are, you have, uh, you just kind of taught yourself on sociology and economics, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, I, I do have graduate degrees in both sociology and in economic development. So, I mean, I have. Oh, economic development. Okay. Yeah. Well, you keep telling me you're not an economist. That's what it is. Well, I, you yeah. get into things like macroeconomics and, and money supply and, you know, quantitative easing. My brain freezes over like everybody else's does. Yeah, gotcha. I gotcha. I had a, I had a, P, I had a PH, I had a PhD in economics tell me that, uh, People that can't get PhDs in economics get MBAs. So there you go. <laughs> I, you know, I was at a conference in Oxford University about, oh gosh, it's got to be 
it's got to be 12, 13 years now, where there were uh, economists and MBAs there, and the tension was clear in the discussions. It was really interesting yeah. uh, to watch the, 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 the back and forth and the disagreements between the two. Okay, that's neither here nor there. You also, you also have uh, spent time uh, in the area of public theology. So t- t- tell us what public theology is. Well, public theology, I think of as being how does the Christian faith relate to broader society? How does it relate to the okay. things that are happening in, in the culture? And uh, so more than just uh, personal piety or uh, biblical studies, that type of thing, this is how does theology relate to the broader issues in society? That, that's how I typically think of okay. it. Have you, read, have you read on that in any uh, Mirsov Yes, yes. Okay, because he's really, he talks a lot about public. We should make that an episode one one time. What's public theology and why is it important? And the reason as I say that is because, you know, our, our a mutual friend of ours, Scott McKnight, talks about kingdom and the difference between kingdom work and good work and all of that. And it has caused a little bit of controversy over that. Uh, might be a good idea to just have that conversation one time. Yeah, so. it should. Yeah, it's a you also you've also worked for profits and nonprofit firms, so you know they're both in those worlds. And you have served in the Presbyterian Church uh, for twenty five years at all levels, so you are embedded with the Presbyterians. You are a Presbyterian. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, I served uh, congregational sessions. I've served Presbytery of. Had some responsibilities to the Senate. I was chair of the Presbyterian Mission Agency Board for a while. Uh, so, yeah, been yeah. been through the whole levels of Presbyterianism. Yeah. Okay. Well, and you and I are proof that uh, friendships can take place across denominational lines. <laughs> there you go. That's right. I had somebody say to me one time, you're in another church. We were going to do something in partnership with a Presbyterian church. And a church member came up to me after service because we had made the announcement. And they said to me, but pastor, they're Presbyterians. (laughs) (laughs) I said, yes, I noticed that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we need to get on. Everybody, I'm sure, is uh, tired of our small talk. So today we're asking the question. And I'm, I'm going to ask the question this way because I'm not going to presume a conclusion yet. But does the church fail business people? And this is the book that's going to uh, uh, launch our discussion uh, by John Knapp, How the Church Fails Business People. This was a book you recommended to me, Michael. And as you can see by my marks, I, I read through it and got all, I got more questions and thoughts than we've got time. But, um, boy, what a great read. And and I want to say right now uh, that, first of all, I would recommend any pastor read this book. I, I Because, you know, almost all of us who have been pastored, or pastored churches, all of us have had business people in our congregations. I've been blessed in every church I've served uh, to have had business people. And uh, it's uh, it, this is just a great read. Yeah. And uh, the other thing that I would recommend that Christian business people read the book. Yeah. Um, and so you and I, one of the things, this how, how I want to start our conversation, you and I have both had the same experience of at times listening to a sermon 
And so since I preach, I don't get to hear too many, but, you know, I go to our annual conference meetings and I listen to our general conferences and we get these, we have these moments where some preacher says, makes some kind of sweeping claim about business. Uh, and I cringe, <laughs> right? Uh, because it, look, I'm, I'm a pastor, you know, I don't understand the ins and outs of all business. I know a little bit. I, you know, I think I can work my way around the room, but I don't know. I don't know all this stuff that, that business people, what makes for a good business and all of that. Um, but, uh, it's, it's important. Uh, it's important to have this conversation. So why, in, in what way do you think the church at times fails business people? Now here, I think we're specifically talking about Christians who are in business, right? right. Yeah. And I don't want to ignore people who have other faith commitments in business, but specifically we're focusing on, you know, the business people who sit in my pews on Sunday morning, sit in the pews where you go to church. How does the church fail business people? Well, yeah, and I, and I just want to preface the conversation. It may sound like at times when I'm talking that I'm I'm putting all the onus on the church or on pastors is the problem, and it isn't. It, it's a systemic, uh, codependent <laughs> failure. It's, that, you know, it's a codependent relationship. Yes. Yes. What's the the at the end of Annie Hall? Woody Allen has the thing about. He says, "Doc, you got to." He's talking to a psychiatrist. He says, "You got to help me. I got this friend who thinks he's a chicken." And he says, "Well, you have you told him he isn't a chicken? No, because I need the eggs." Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it's uh, and, and this topic. It, it often feels that way to some degree. Pastors, yeah. I think, often are reticent or um, conflicted about what to say about business and some of these these issues. And the other side of that is, if, I've seen this over and over again, it's come up in many conversations where church members, um, a controversial topic is being uh, broached in the in the congregation, and church members will say, why do we have to talk about all this? Church right. is my refuge to get away from all this stuff. Yes. I have to deal with at work and, and, and TV and all that type of stuff, and I come here to get away from it. Now you just want to bring it here to church and talk about all that. So there's this divide between two worlds, the world of the church and the world of business. Yeah. And trying to figure out how to have that conversation. Pastors, uh, many pastors have a, um, what I'm going to say, they benefit by not getting into that because it causes controversy for them. And right. the church members benefit from that because they don't have to think about it. This is their, they just carve yeah. part of their life and you live one thing over here and the other over there. Um, yeah. I don't think that's true of everybody. I, I, I think at the, at the core of who most of us are, we want our lives to be integrated. We, we, yep. we, we want to feel whole. We want to feel that our whole lives are meaningful and that they are together. Um, I think it's interesting. Knapp talks about having his students go out and uh, they interview 230 people from all walks of life. And one of the, th they have five questions. It's a, uh, what do you call it? interview type thing that they do with business people. So they interviewed 230 people. And I think one of the things they asked them to do is to imagine a difficult situation that you've had in business at some point in your life. Um, did you seek out your pastor or some other spiritual leader for advice on what to do about that issue? Can you think of, of an issue like that? 
out of 230 people, these are people range from U.S. senators to people who work cleaning people in hotels and right. all sorts of gradations of jobs in between. Uh, 230 people, 18 said that they had, and at least nine or 10 of those did because they were thinking about switching jobs from one job to another, which meant, you know, a handful of people had ever sought out a spiritual leader for a tough ethical question that they had in their business life. And it just shows you how uh, divided our, our spirituality is often is from business. Yeah. And so I, I think the that's, that's why I think this is important. I know some people will read this book and say how the church fails business people and what they think they may be reading between the lines as well. The church should be, so you're saying the church should just be affirming business people for who they are and get on the bandwagon and cheer them on and all that kind of, mm, not exactly. Um, the, the issue is, is how do we integrate business into our faith? And the church generally has not done a good job of that. Yeah, and I, I can say that of all the business people I, I have, have the privilege of serving as their pastor, every one of them has wanted to put their faith into practice in their business. Right. There, there's nobody who has, has thought that their faith somehow is separated off, although that does happen, right? Sure. I mean, the book points that out. Um, so, you know, one of the interesting dilemmas, so the two things. Um, the first is um, there's a real generational difference here uh, in reference to what you discuss in church, because those of us who come from the boomer older generation, and I'm, 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 uh, I'm born right on the line between Boomer and Gen X. And so uh, having, having an uh, ambiguous identity really fits me well anyway. But, but for those of us who are older, we didn't talk about these things in church, whether it was politics or business or, you know, anything controversial. But the younger folks, the millennials, uh, Generation Z, uh, these folks, this is one of their complaints about the church is that, you know, we want to, we want to think about these things. We want to think about these things in reference to our faith. We don't want to be told what to think, but we want to talk about it because by the way, somehow our faith should matter for it. Right. And so, and I see this, by the way, I see this in my congregation um, because we, I've got a couple of coworkers who are, you know, uh, one is mid twenties, one is 30. And they, it's, they just think it makes perfect sense. So we need to talk about sexuality in church. We need to right. talk about immigration. We need to talk about all these things. And, you, you know, and so we have tried to host what you have called courageous conversations. We did one on race about a year ago, and we're going to do, I'm going to do one in winter on immigration, where we bring people together in conversation for that. But there are people in the church who will not take it because they just, they, they're like what you said, that I go to church to get away from it all. Right. Uh, whereas I continue to insist that uh, when, when the church gathers together, this is not where, church, we don't gather together to get away from it all. We gather together to uh, attempt to make sense of it all, right? And so we have to have these conversations. Right. Yeah, this is tough, but this is tough for pastors because pastors... Uh, in many ways, we walk a fine line on these controversial issues with, that, with different understandings of politics. We have people who are who come from labor; others come from management. Yeah, you know, uh, I have uh, I've had a superintendent in my school, and same teachers, and there's all kinds of stuff. So, 
Yeah. It's really kind of easy for us to just actually get away from it all and ignore it, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and I, I think the thing, this actually taps into a broader issue for me in general when you think about economics and, and uh, uh, those broader issues, but particularly with business and work, what, you know, other than our family life and what we do in our homes and our, in our neighborhoods, what do we spend the majority of our hours of each day, each weekday anyway, doing? We're at work. You know, that, that's what we do. Um, and so that's where people are spending their lives. That's where they, their, their faith meets the world in many times in the most significant ways. Uh, Knapp points out in his book, and I, I, I met Knapp actually, we've had several conversations. I really enjoyed talking with him. But just talking about doing research on seminaries, he went down through, through course listings for, for seminaries. And I forget how many he went through, all from you know, mainline evangelical seminaries across the board. And he found, you know, maybe a handful of, of seminaries, like two or three classes in a couple of seminaries that talked about the issues of work and faith. But every one of them has multiple classes about family and family dynamics and family yeah. counseling and, you know, all these kinds of things. And it's not that those aren't important, but it's just that the other, it just seems invisible uh, in the life of the church. Yeah. It, it's not I don't think most people, when you talk to them and ask them uh, the liturgy that occurs during the church, the corporate prayer, um, things that get prayed for and, and the pastoral prayers or things that people lift up prayers for, almost never seems to touch on the issues of business and work life. Yeah. Um, there, it, and to the degree it does, it's usually very peripheral. And the, yeah. that the, the message that just seems to get communicated through the whole ethos is that Business is over here. That's one segment of my life, and, and church is what I do over here. And uh, so, yeah. Don't you think a big part of that is the fact that uh, the church in the West has just been, and I'm going to use the word infested, uh, infested with Western hyper-individualism. Right. And we take that into our faith. So my faith is about me. Right. And at the most outside of me, it's about my family, right? Because that's important. But we have so individualized the faith that the larger issues, the I'll call them social corporate issues, uh, just are not on the radar. By the way, you see this now. Uh, and I think, I think you and I actually talked about this. Uh, in, uh, with, with everything going on right now with the racial tensions in our society. And... Uh, of course, the Bible, which I believe speaks to these issues, uh, you've got some pastors who are saying, well, the Bible doesn't address, address systemic issues. It doesn't address corporate. It, it, it addresses the individual life and the soul and salvation, which, of course, mm -hmm. is, is only partly true. It does, it does address the latter, but it also addresses the former. But that's the individualism of our culture. So it's very easy then for us to compartmentalize business, politics. It, it's easy to compartmentalize these things <clears throat> and focus on my faith as my faith. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I think another piece to this too, in terms of what's happening in the culture, there's the individual individualism aspect of this. Yeah. But I, I, the, you talk about trying to integrate economics and faith. And the two streams that I tend to see when I when I look at this, where conversations about economics and faith happen, 
And a lot of the conservative churches that I have been around and I listen to their speakers and read the stuff they write, there tends to be almost this blanket baptism of American capitalism yeah. and, you know, business and that type of stuff. And you have the guy who's the local big wig in town with the, the great business. And he's the, the person we're going to have speak on Sunday because he's such a, you know, a dynamic Christian person. Well, the guy may have no <laughs> Christian groundings and maybe a great business person, a nice guy, but really has no, you know, theological grounding and so on. And yet, because he's a good business person, we lift these people up as as role models for what it means yeah. to be like Christ. And often there's there's not a lot there. And so there's on the one hand, there's this sense of just sort of baptizing the culture of American Christianity. On the other side, in more progressive churches, which is what you tend to find more Presbyterian Church USA, a lot of Methodist churches, there is just sort of this ethereal blanket distrust of all things business and capitalism it's yeah. all evil it's all exploitive and you're participating in evil systems if you're part of business but go ahead and come to church and give us our tithe and the way you can redeem yourself is by serving on our church boards and, and helping us with our programming and projects we're doing here right. but from the pulpit largely all you're going to hear is is condemnation and I, i'll just share this one brief story with you that I thought was interesting. I was talking with a, this has been a few years ago, but I was talking with a pastor who had been a solo pastor of a fairly good sized Presbyterian church for 25 years, very progressive guy, very progressive in his politics. And he was, we were talking about this very topic. And he says, well, I got a little confession for you. He says, you know, I, I'm one of those guys who stood up in the pulpit, preached every Sunday. And, you know, I occasionally would rail against capitalism and, you know, the evils of business and consumerism and all this stuff. And he says, and then after he left this church, he went to work in his associate pastor at a large mega church and was had a more specialized thing there. And he said, one day he was walking past a group of men from the church that were having a, a Bible study together. And they're all business people. It was a little business group. And one of them was talking to the others. And he was saying, look, he says, my company is supposed to be, we, we are exporting this project. We want to export to Nigeria. And we can get, because there's a really good market there for what we're doing. We'd like to get into that market. And our competitors are getting in that market. But they want bribes for everything that we're doing in order to try to get this product, you know, product in there. And my faith tells me that you can't pay bribes, you know, that, that that's not legitimate. What, what do we, you know, what would you guys do in this? So then they begin having this conversation. And he says, it was that moment as he's walking by just overhearing this conversation he realized that all these years there's been these people sitting in the, his congregation who are legitimately struggling, trying to figure out how to reconcile these various things in their faith and business. And he had never provided a forum or a venue where he could bring his theological knowledge, his biblical study in order to help people try to process those kind of issues. Instead, he just stated this very ethereal um, sort of holier than thou, you know, kind of perspective in terms of his preaching. And um, so I think that that's, that to me was interesting to hear him uh, give, give that testimony uh, about, you know, what was going on. Yeah. Yeah, I, I said often with, I said, all my trusts and pastors will condemn business across the board, but they'll be right there when they need a big gift for their building addition. Exactly. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. 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 And so it isn't that simple. It isn't. You know, um, you know um, and by the way, when it comes to, uh, and I don't want to get back on socialism versus capitalism. We had that discussion a couple of months ago, but, right. but uh, the reality is if you study any 
government, any nation, currently or past, uh, ones that are the most laissez-faire you can find and one that are the most socialist you can find and somewhere in between, every single one of them has wealthy people and every right. single one of them has poor people. Right. So when people hold up this whole system, right, right. Um, as being the antidote, my answer is I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. Um, and so you have to get to deeper issues of, of ethics and of character and of what's right and doing the right thing. Right. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, so thanks. Um, he talks about uh, the necessity of a Christian ethic. Yeah. Um, and here's, this was interesting. He says, this is on page 14, but he says, most major corporations had no ethics codes as recently as 1990. Yeah. Nearly all of them have them today. What changed? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think there has been a big effort in business schools. I don't, I don't know the history enough of that to, to know yeah. exactly what, what prompted that. Uh, I, I got my MBA in the uh, late 80s, but of course, this was at a Christian institution. Yeah. And, uh, we, and our, our MBA class was more than just the MBA classes. There were also theology classes that were added to that MBA and, and others as well. So Christian ethics was a very big, uh, obviously, part of my education. But yeah. yes, I think that was very much the exception at that time. Uh, but I don't know. I, I, I don't have a good sense of, of what might have sparked that. Yeah, I almost, I almost, I'm, I'm, I don't know it either. I'm almost half tempted off the top of my head to say it probably because of lawsuits. <laughs> you know, you start making rules, you start doing, I mean, the whole, I mean, many years ago, our conference, uh, and this was back, oh gosh, this was early 90s. Uh, we started, we started requiring clergy to attend a uh, sexual ethics seminar once every two or three years. And that only started because we had a lawsuit in the conference. So, as I used to say, it was the conference covering their butts by telling us to cover our fronts, right? So, so you know, you, if the conference gets sued, they say negligent hiring, they say, hey, wait a minute, we had the seminar, we went through this training, right? So that's probably why. Um, here's another thing, he says, he says on page 16, and, and it's an obvious observation, but sometimes, you know, in certain contexts, obvious observations can be the most profound, right? Yes. We turn to, it's at the bottom of the page, we turn to our theology, not law or economics, with the big questions about who we are and how we ought to relate to others and the world we inhabit. Michael, do we do that? I don't know that we do that. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what we're supposed to do, yeah, yeah, but I don't know that we do that. I, I was just saying, I was saying to another pastor this morning, uh, a friend of mine, we, were, we, we made on Tuesdays to talk about lectionary texts for Sunday. And I said to him, I said, what, what has, in, in this whole period of COVID, what has just really uh, su surprised me and disappointed me is how little, how, how Christians I know, okay, who I'm sure are faithful, and I know they're faithful, and my, everything that I can see, they're faithful, and I saw so not doubting their faithfulness, but how many of them, in responding to this time of COVID, there's just no sense of the great commandment, loving neighbor. 
Yeah, right. To, to respond in such a way that I need, whatever I do, I need to, I need to act in such a way to fulfill what Jesus says is one of the two great commandments, loving my neighbor. Do we really, do we really for the big things in life, go to faith? I mean, go to our theology. It's, it, I, I have serious doubts about that. Yeah. Well, and I think what, it's an interesting question. When somebody um, is getting acquainted with somebody else that they've just met, what's one of the first questions they ask them? What do you do? What do you do? Yeah. So the, your, your first thing, the one of the key identifiers that we use to to size up other people is what their occupation is, what what their job right. is. Right. And uh, so, I mean, obviously, that that's at the center of our identity. And I think that that begins to, if, if that's at the center of who you are and what's driving things, things are going to get distorted and twisted. Yeah. And I, I think what, what you're getting at to me, and this is, this actually, comes back up to the 30,000, 50,000 foot level again out of this topic and, and applies to so many others is that we don't seem to have what I would call an all-inclusive narrative of what God is doing in the world that ties in our work and the various aspects of our life together into a cohesive narrative. Um, yeah. And I, I, it goes back to some of this I was just talking about for, uh, before. Church is a refuge. Church is an escape from the world, like, which is over there. And I come over here to get this, to get recharged and get my batteries to go back out over there so that I can live that and keep coming back. Rather than seeing that I am an ambassador, that the church is kind of like the embassy, and we are being sent from that embassy as ambassadors into the daily lives that we live each day in order to be right. ambassadors. And so what does it mean to represent the embassy, to represent this other kingdom in our particular daily lives. I don't think most people have that perspective. Uh, that, that, that's what they're, or if they, they may have an intellectual assent to that, that, that they understand that, but it does not penetrate and, and uh, fill them in terms of the warp and woof of who they are and how they think. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think at some level that that is where we have a, a big issue in the church and we tend to just latch on. I was, I was getting at this earlier. It's another way of saying the same thing. I think in a lot of conservative churches, we bought into this white nationalism thing of America and America first and America is great. And so that's not Christian. It's, and it's just, you know, we're latching onto what's in the culture and other parts of the church it's what defines us is our progressive commitment and to creating a more progressive world. And so all of our liturgy, all of our um, activities, our programming is all oriented towards advancing the sort of progressive agenda type thing that, that we've got that we want to advance. But there's no core inclusive picture that pulls it all together. Right. So, yeah, I don't know if I'm being clear, but that's well, I'm being very clear. Doesn't that go back to the notion of vocation yeah. um, that that uh, the belief that um, uh, God doesn't just call people like me to be a pastor or other people to be missionaries, but that God can call us to be teachers. God can call us to be in business uh, and provide service. God can call us to be, you know, whatever it might be. I mean, I tell you what, I love a good God. That I mean, I, I, I've said before, it's, I've said throughout my life, it is such a blessing to have a God-inspired auto mechanic. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Because, <laughs> first of all, they're honest, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, so, so we've lost that sense. 
<clears throat> of vocation. So, you know, I wonder, I wonder how many, and I'm sure there are some, uh, are there any Christian business persons who think to themselves, God called me to do this? Yeah, I, I think there are. And I think people, very, a lot of people have very much a strong sense that this is, they're, they're fulfilling yeah. some sort of a deeper calling in their life. I do want to be careful there, though, because I think the majority of people um, probably don't have that feeling. Yeah. In, in the sense of that their occupation is something that truly fulfills them and fulfills some sort of great gift that God's given them to do this particular yeah. thing. And that type of work is good. It's okay. Yes. That the idea that your work may not be particularly meaningful, sometimes work has instrumental value that, that you have to do. And there are other ways in which uh, you may exhibit some of those gifts that God has given you in right. context at work or in family or church that, you know, that, that are not going to play out in your occupation. There's work that has to be done that somebody mm -hmm. has to do. And not all of us are in those real happy situations. I've always been a bit troubled by that, that what was the thing about find you know, what the world's deepest need is and what your deepest passion is and match, you know, the two up. Well, that that's really great and works for probably about one or two percent of the population. Right. right. <laughs> well, well, exactly. And and so, you know, for some people, uh, their, their work uh, is to uh, put food on the table for their families. I mean, exactly. That can certainly be seen as what a Christian does. Right. Uh, being responsible. Right. Um, yeah. So, so we can overdo the vocation thing in some ways, is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, right. I, yeah. I, I, I go back to the whole thing of from Genesis to Revelation. I mean, the whole story of Genesis 1 is the idea that, that man and woman are put there as the image of God. They're the ones who are the vice regents over creation. You see evidence of that through scripture at various points. And the whole thing begins in the garden. And at the end, it ends up with the city in a garden. Yeah. Uh, with the, the tree of life by the river there and we will reign again and the idea of reigning over creation and all of the the glory of humanity from the various nations is brought into that heavenly city and so there's a sense in which what we're doing now somehow matters to this future vision that god is creating in the new world that, yeah. that the, these things are being built and that we are a part of that, that, that we are co-creators. We are vice regents with God in creation and bringing about the goodness in the world that God intends for the world to have. And um, I don't think most of us experience that that's. Yeah, as I recall, I then want to say Pope John Paul II actually uh, published an encyclical on that, of being co-laborers, co-creators. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and that we are... Um, and theologically, creation is still uh, uh, being is still happening. I mean, I think right. obviously that's true scientifically. Right. Uh, the universe is expanding, but there is something about the fact that we continue that creation is not a static thing, which right. you can, by the way, get from the Genesis account if you read it too literally. But one of the other things that just occurs to me as you're talking about Genesis and Revelation is Sabbath is a time to recreate and it is a way also to be reminded that our identity is not found solely in what we do right because because one day a week we are to take uh we're to take the day off we don't we don't uh we don't uh, treat it legalistically 
like some of the Pharisees, that the, the issue is just not do anything. No, the issue is to recreate. The issue is to be reminded of what's at the center. Because work takes a lot of time. And if we're not careful, it can, and this, uh, someone's going to accuse me of being Marxist here, but it can alienate us. It can alienate us from right. what's really important. And I think building Sabbath. So, I mean, it just goes, it just, it, to me, it just reinforces what you were saying. We don't want to, we, we, vocation is important, but we don't want to go all out on it because what happens then to Sabbath? Yeah, right. Exactly. And, and the, the temptation then is that you create vocation as an, as an idol. Yes. Your, your identity is what you do. Well, that's, yes. not true. That, that's not true. It isn't true. What you do is important. It's, it's an act of service to God. It's a rendering of something to God, but it is not the thing itself. And I, I think that, that right. so on the one hand, we, we just sort of seem indifferent and um, ignore the issue of vocation in people's daily lives, which leads to, to two extremes. One is the idolization of their, their economic life, their work, and just making that the center of everything they do, or it leaves them feeling very dissatisfied and lost yeah. and, and without direction because they can't figure out what's supposed to give meaning to their life. Yeah, it's so somehow figuring out that larger narrative, um, how, how does our work life integrate with the rest of our, our, uh, our spirituality? I, I, I thought at the end of the book, he sort of gave four, you know, suggestions of, of things that we should pursue in, in terms of the church, which I thought was, were pretty good. I thought, well, why don't we take a look at that then? Um, and go through that. Uh, help me out. It was collaborative leadership was the, the first thing I saw at the end of the book there in that last chapter. Uh, I'm not sure what page that starts on. Um, oh, chapter eight. Yeah. Oh. Chapter eight. He says, uh, where is this? Yeah. Starts on page 150. So let's take those. Yeah. Uh, collaborative leadership, courageous conversations, relevant worship, and a more inclusive narrative. So let's take them in turn, Michael. Co co uh, collaborative leadership. What leaders are collaborating here that he has in mind? I think you're talking about pastors, the, the people that are spiritual leaders, and you're talking about business people walking together to figure this out. Um, Pastors often don't have the, uh, you know, they, many of them, some have, but most of them don't have the experience of having worked in the, in the business world. It's, it's not first nature to them in terms of how all this works. Business people are not studied in scripture. They're not, they don't have the biblical studies, the theology background, all that type of thing to the, the resources necessarily that they all need. And so to figure this difficult question out is going to require people walking side by side to try to figure out, um, yeah what this is. It can't just be a top-down program where we're going to train business people to be the right type of people or business people, uh, which too often happens the other direction, just going off by themselves, being their own group within the church, disconnected from the congregation, but getting together and, and supporting each other. So, yeah, I have, a, I have a, a good friend for many, many years who is, he's now, he just retired, but, uh, but he uh, was a, a minority owner in a business for many years, spent his life in business, really attempts to bring his faith as, into his business practices. 
And when the meltdown hit in 2008, and he and I, we get together every two, three months and just, we meet halfway, have lunch. And he was going through a lot of struggles because uh, they were going to have to lay people off. Uh, the headquarters is here in Ohio, but he had, there was a, a, a factory, I want to say down in Florida. And so I can remember just spending our lunchtime together and just talking and, and struggling and me doing my best to give him a little bit of wisdom as I could. But um, one of the things that so impressed me about him was that when they made the decision to close that factory in Florida, he flew down there personally. And he met with everybody that worked there and told them what was going on, talked through with them, uh, told them that, you know, they would work on giving them as much as they could, severance package, blah, 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 blah. But he wasn't content just to send out the email, right? right. You hear these stories about, you know, you go to work and everybody has an email that says, oh, we're, we're close today, right? We're closing down for good. He wasn't content to do that. He right. wanted, because these are human, for him, these are human beings. They're supporting their families. And he wanted to share in, he wanted to share in what was going to be bad news for them. Yeah. And I just hugely admired that. Right, and it was because, but it was because I know, because I know him, and I know his Christian convictions. Right, and these weren't just people who who were feeding his bottom line and no longer could, and so now they were dispensable. These are human beings, and you talk about the image of God in creation. I mean, to me, that was just—I've never forgotten that. Right. Um, but I think, but I also think about the fact, and I don't know, I I don't know that maybe in some way our collaboration hopefully helped him think through some of those things. Right. And, and wouldn't it be great if we could have that kind of collaboration on a regular basis uh, with between business leaders and say pastors in the community or lay people who've really thought about these things. Right. And, and so the question is, so what's the formula for doing? Well, there is no formula. Yeah. Just, just start trying. <laughs> we don't, yeah, we don't. Yeah, there's no formula, and thank God because I, I, I was lost in formulas when I was in math. So, uh, it, it's it's really good. So yes, and I'm, and, you know, collaboration. You know, Michael, you know, in anything, there is just nothing better than leading by collaboration. I, I, I just, I collaborate all the time in the, in, in our congregation. Yeah. Um, and there are certain things that by our book of discipline, I have charge of. I mean, right. I mean, if I decide tomorrow I want to change the worship time, I can do it. Right. But I'm not going to do it. Yeah. If, if I feel like we need to think about that, we're going to collaborate. Right. And, and so collaboration is just critical. So I just appreciate that. Okay, the next one, courageous conversations. Yeah. He says, real change comes grudgingly to any established organization. I don't think he has to prove that, does it? Uh, <laughs> but this is especially true of churches. He doesn't have to prove that either. Uh, he says, um, it is easy enough to tweak existing programs or an occasional Sunday school lesson, sermon, or guest speaker. The cultural transformation must begin with honest dialogue about the extent to which the church helps Christians connect faith in work and work. So courageous conversations. Yeah. And I think there it, it ties in with the collaborative leadership issue as well. It's just simply being able to develop the trust where people can be honest 
about what they're experiencing and what they're feeling and yeah. knowing that you're going to disagree. I mean, you, yeah. you talked about having uh, church superintendents. I'm going to let me see if I can get that out of there. Sorry, I had a phone call trying to come in. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah. If you have um, people trying to uh, have difficult conversations in spaces, there has to be a level of trust that exists. I was, um, I think I was telling you about one of our previous conversations about a pastor friend who said that a businessman came to him and was telling him he was going to buy the, I think it was Aaron Rents. I think I, I misnamed the business last time we were talking, but I think it was the Aaron Rents franchise, which tends to charge exorbitant interest and in prices to people that are trying to rent furniture, that type of thing. Pastor had some questions about getting into this business model, but the guy bought a couple of franchises and comes back several months later and is talking to the pastor and he says, um, you know, I'm, I'm starting to have some ethical questions about how this whole business model works and, and, you know, whether this is the right thing to do or not. And the pastor says, well, you know, when you told me you were getting that franchise, I was, I was kind of, you know, questioning that myself. And so the guy will say, well, why didn't you say something? You know, why, why didn't you, you know, challenge me, ask the question? Well, because he didn't want to offend. He didn't want to, um, you, you've got to have the place where you can have those courageous conversations to be honest with each other and, and to say, we may end up disagreeing about the topic and we're still going to walk together and keep pursuing these issues. Um, so that's the collaborative leadership along with the courageous conversations, I think, is probably key to, to figuring out a way forward. You, so you have to have two things for a courageous conversation. Uh, the first is you got to have the courage. So you, people yeah. have to be willing to do that. And and the second thing, of course, is trust because it's true. Yeah. You and I both know uh, that we will listen to something we probably disagree with if we're listening to someone we trust. Right. As opposed to someone we either distrust or we don't even know. Right. 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 So, uh, and that takes and that takes building relationship and that takes time. You know, the reality is the reality is just because you got the title pastor or reverend or whatever it is doesn't automatically mean you get respect. Right. And so you know, and I think there are people and, and there are people and, and there's other professions too like this where you know some people think because you've got a title or you've got certain letters after your name that somehow that should automatically command respect. Uh, but that just isn't the way it works. Right. Yeah. Right. So, and as, and as a business person, you may think you've got it all figured out. You've got the, the theology behind this. And sometimes you need to be a little more teachable. Um, just oh, listen yeah. to, to, to what's being said and, and, and realize there may be alternative ways of, of looking at the issues that you're dealing with. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think those are the, those are two of the things that I have done over the years, Michael, and I and, and I have to say I haven't done it with every single person, um, but I should I should have. But that I will, you know, if I got someone in my church who's in, and they don't say I have to be in business. They may teach at a university somewhere or whatever it is. I'll right. say to them, do you mind if one day at your convenience, I come to your place for an hour or two and show me around and let me yeah. see what you do? I'd like to know. And uh, I've never had anyone turn me down. Uh, in fact, I've had people pretty happy to, you know, show, show to me what's important to them. But what that does is it does two things. First of all, it, it makes a connection. But secondly, it tells them, which is what, what is true, 
And that is, I'm interested in what they do, and I'm interested in real life. Right. And I think if you do that, then then we have to have those courageous conversations. It, it's easier. Right. Yeah. That, that's an excellent point. I, I think one of the interesting things is that Nat points out in his book, he, he taught at Columbia Seminary down in Georgia, and he talked about um, that with the MDiv students, that one of the assignments he had for his class was that they had to go out and interview three people in business in their business setting and, and yeah. to learn about their business. Students are very reluctant to do this. They, they, you know, what's the point of this? And that's an awkward situation, that type of thing. And he talks almost to a student that after they had gone out and done those interviews, it totally changed their whole perspective on ministry and, and, and what, they, what they were to do and what they're to be about. Yeah. It suddenly gave them a much more full-orbed view of what, what ministry needs to be about. Um, so yeah, that, that just that occasionally taking that time and getting acquainted with what it is that people actually do. And, uh, even if it's not possible with every occupation, but to spend time in the workplace, uh, with people to find out what they're, what they're doing is it that that's a big trust builder right there. And, and really gives you insight that the pastor really has, has got some perspective on what you're doing. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very good. He also talks about relevant worship. Now I like worship. Um, I, 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 you know, when relevant, I mean, I always have to say this is, this is the Carl Bart coming out in me, but I just, uh, I, I get nervous when I hear the word relevant because it tells me, it says to me that worship in and of itself is not relevant. There's something I got to do to make it that way. It's the same way with making the gospel relevant. Um, no, the gospel is relevant. It's already relevant. Right. Uh, I don't have to do anything to make it that way. So I have to confess my radar goes up a little bit. Yeah. But I don't think that's really what he's talking about, is it? No, I, I think what he's simply doing here is that we have had a strong tendency to overlook and, and not see the work of daily life in people's lives. And in our, in our liturgies, the, that aspect of our existence should be reflected. In, in the liturgies it's certainly reflected in scripture and so yes. We, yes. we 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 tend to overlook that that aspect of things one of the the things i think is interesting is that if you talk about you're going to have a, a mission group that's going to go to guatemala or guatemala or haiti or something like that we'll have a commissioning service to send people to to go on those events we have somebody who's, they're going to teach uh, Christian education classes in the Christian education program. We'll have a commissioning service uh, for them to teach those Christian education classes. But where have you ever seen a commissioning service for people to go do the work that they're doing in their, their lives, which is what occupies the great majority of people's times? Yeah. Is there any way in which we, we put our hands on people and bless them and send them into the world to do the work that they're doing in their daily lives. I don't think yeah. most people have the sense of that kind of we don't. call to it. And so in that sense, I, I think that's what he's sort of getting at, in my understanding, of, of relevant right. worship is that it's not so much trying to add on or make, make it feel relevant to people as it is that there is a neglected part of our theology, a neglected part of our public theology that, that needs to be recovered. You know? Yeah, yeah, and I agree with him on that. And I, I do think it's important. Uh, that we try and find ways to reconcile that. Yeah. He also talks about a more inclusive narrative. Yeah. Uh, and he talks about the church's story itself. 
which is, is interesting. And every church has a story. I'm not so sure congregations and pastors, to be honest. I don't think we think about that too often. I think the, the, the most we get is when we think about who we are, we'll say we're friendly, right? Yeah. Um, that's usually the number one thing. But, but um, you know, he, he says, uh, what is the church's story of itself? Who are central to the narrative? And then he says for us, and this is great. This is really great. For a simple test, visit the websites of a few churches and notice the images describing the congregations and their priorities. You'll likely find many depictions of worship, youth activities, service projects, clergy, and perhaps a foreign missionary or two. Suddenly you see photographs or other descriptions of church members in their weekday work. Too often we reduce the church's rich story to a collection of programs, inevitably dampening the vitality of a community of believers serving through Christ in their everyday living. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was at a church probably four or five years ago I thought it was interesting. They had these giant bulletin boards on that were on wheels. They had like three or four of them out in their big foyer area. Mm -hmm. And what they had done is they had invited church members to take a little selfie of themselves and then they would post the picture up there on, like on a little uh, three by five index card type thing. And then they talk about to where they are called in terms of work. And each ah. member put the picture up there. They put down what their occupation was and then they could write any notes that they wanted to or any ways that they wish to be prayed for in terms of their, their work. And there were like 300, 350 people that had put their, their little postcards up there just saying this is who i am and this is this is the place where god has called me right now you know this is what i'm doing and you walk into that church that's the first thing that greets you when you walk in the door there along with all the other stuff the churchy stuff that we normally see and it really sort of gave you a impression that this is a focus this is this is you know th this group values that type of service in the world um so i one of the things i did is a little exercise i don't know if i could find it again but about eight or nine years ago, um, I wrote a commissioning service, this, this sort of a blanket commissioning service, a, a liturgy uh, mm -hmm. that you could use for uh, blessing the congregation for people for their work lives. You know, uh, that, that was, uh, you know, just it was a, more of a experiment from my standpoint to see if I could what I could come up with. But anyway, those are just interesting little things of thinking about how do we increase in, in, in this inclusive narrative that includes the idea of vocation and, and making it more prominent in, in what our thinking is? Because I think most people, like you said, very individualistic. Uh, we tend to think in terms of just our, our personal lives and not how we are ambassadors sent to the work world or on the idea that we're there to, to fight for justice and to correct wrongs. But that doesn't seem to fit into a larger narrative of, of what we're doing in our work lives. Neither of those really seem to address it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're getting to time, but I want to end with uh, on page 156. It's the last page of the book. There's a question asked, and I'm going to ask you the question. Yeah. How might your local church begin to explore new avenues of ministry to connect the worlds of faith in work, and who would be involved? If you are if you are on the ground up of this, so you know your pastor comes to you and says, "I want to start this." What's, right. What would you say? I think you start this the way you do most things that end up going successfully. You find two or three people that also share a common passion and vision. You have conversation with them, and then you begin to develop 
a um, a perspective, a view of where where to go with that to the future, and then figure out how you can add two or three more. Mm. And then uh, as that develops, then you figure out how you can add two or three more beyond that. The idea of developing a snowball effect. Okay. Um, I I think the temptation with a lot of church situations is well, let's create a program and let's bring everybody from point A to point B in one big, um, you know, one big movement. Yeah. And I, I really think that the way is to begin. And I, when I say that, I should also qualify that I think what often happens is that a business person, which is often where a lot of this energy comes from to, to pursue these issues, business person gets excited about this. They tend to be Lone Ranger go off, find two or three other business people, they exclude their congregation, they exclude the pastor from the conversation, and they begin uh, to get this thing going. And so it starts taking off as this own little cell that's apart from the life of the rest of the church. Right. It's a very tempting thing because that way you don't have to deal with that difficult pastor who doesn't understand all this stuff in the first place. So let's just, we all know what we're doing, so let's go create yeah. something. Yeah. Um, so and that's that's one side. The other side for a pastor, I think, sometime would be to try to create a big program for all the business people to come together and do this thing. I don't think either of those is a good way to start. I think you find two or three people, disciple them, and begin to grow from there. That's that's my thoughts. Yeah, sounds good. I like it. Well, my goodness, good conversation. Yeah. Um, friends, put, I'm going to put the uh, Amazon link to this book. How the Church Trails Business People uh, on both on the uh, uh, YouTube site and uh, YouTube channel on the uh, podcast channel and on my blog and uh, uh, so if you are interested so let me say pastors I, I recommend this book highly uh, and uh, if you're listening uh, and you're a Christian in business I think also this is a good read. I think it's a good read for anybody. It's a, you know what? It's a, it, it, Michael, I was thinking, you know, it's not a difficult read, but it's a, sub, it's a substantive read. So, so the, I mean, the best books are always, in my opinion, substantive and also you're able to understand it. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, Nat did a very good job with this. It's one of the better yeah. written books I've read. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, and so it's, it's really great. All right. Michael Cruz. So, uh, so we're going to close this out. So Michael Cruz, my friend, the Grand Poobah Chair of Economics and Public Theology at Faith Seeking Understanding University, uh, who does a great job of informing us on these matters. Uh, and I'm Alan Bevere. I am the self-appointed uh, Anselm of Canterbury Chair of Podcast Theology and Culture. And it's Anselm who is the patron saint of faith-seeking understanding university who said i do not seek to understand that i may believe but i believe in order to understand so have a good day friends and keep seeking all right see you soon see you soon